church this morning, remain standing as we read our text of study together. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Turn to John chapter 6, verses 22 through 35. Uh, if you have, if you need a copy of God's Word, there's one in the back of your pews, and you can find our text on page 520. Let us hear the word of the Lord together this morning. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat. And they saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. And some boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that, that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went into Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I truly, truly, I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate, your, ate the loaves and you were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which is the Son of Man will give you because, the God, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? See, our ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I'm a pretty nostalgic guy. Most people who know me pretty well know that about me. Uh, I, I somewhat idealize different things from my childhood or from my upbringing. Um, you, can, you can ask Amanda about this later if you want to. Not now, later. Um, but when we go back east, a lot of times driving through Virginia and North Carolina, I, I tend to have those nostalgic moments, and I pass places I went to as a child or a teenager, and, you know, and, and, and every once in a while, um, we'll pass like a restaurant that our family or someone would, we would patron as a kids, and, and then, you know, then, I, and then at that moment, maybe you've done this before, if you ever, if you don't live in your hometown now, you get this craving to kind of relive the old days, you know what I mean? Like, so you, like, I got to go to this restaurant because this restaurant was like the bomb when you were a kid. You know what I'm talking about? All right, and, and, and then the unfortunate reality sets in that when you actually eat at this place, you're like, wow, this is pretty disgusting. <laughs> um, regret sets in and you start to question all of your foodie things going on. Like, like I'm in Nashville now and somehow or another as a foodie, what, what was I thinking as a child? What were my parents thinking as a child by taking me to this stuff? I mean, like they had such low standards of what we would eat. And the pinnacle of that back in the 80s and 90s, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, is the buffet, right? We don't do buffets a lot now, wisely. We don't do buffets a whole lot now. 
Um, but it didn't matter what kind of buffet it was. Like, if it was a buffet, the American family went to the buffet because that was like your best deal. You're going to feed everybody, you go to the buffet. I'm sorry if you like buffets this morning. I'm pretty much going to be down on them this morning, so just be kind. Um, but that was the standard, right, of the 80s and 90s. My family, my brother and my dad are here with me this morning. They would attest to this. We were buffet kings, right? We always liked the buffets, right? And... Uh, Thankfully, my standards have evolved a bit over the years. It's a good thing about marriage. You always have that little subconscious thing sending your words. Like when I get the idea of like, we go through a town and we see the Golden Corral sign. It's like, no, you can look up. No, Tom, don't, don't do that. Don't, that's not going to end well for you if you go there. Kind of thing. God bless our wives, man. But the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about hunger. Like what is the real hunger of our hearts and souls? How do we feel that hunger? As we've been looking at this larger context of Jesus feeding the 5,000 back in the early parts of John chapter 6, we, we see that over and over again, what this whole little second section, this fourth and fifth sign, if you will, that John uses is to expose in us that there's this, there's this tendency to satisfy that hunger with things that will not satisfy it. And in, in, in doing so, we fail to see that the true bread of life, Christ, even for us as believers, some of us who have been following with Jesus for a long time, we don't turn to Jesus as quickly as we should because we're looking to be satisfied by something else rather than Jesus. And this is what Jesus is exposing in this crowd. You need, a, you need something to satisfy a deeper hunger rather than just get your fill. And you know I like to put the sermon in a sentence, so here's my sermon in a sentence this morning so that you can kind of track where we're going. Jesus is the bread of life that calls us away from a life that feverishly seeks to satisfy ourselves, and he calls us to live satisfied in Christ alone. That's the heartbeat of everything that, is, that means to be Christian. It's the heartbeat of everything it means to be the church. And so this text that we just read this morning, I'm kind of breaking it under two headings, or really two questions. I'll go ahead and give them to you now, and you can follow along. What is it that you look to to satisfy your hunger? That's the first question we need to wrestle with. It's the first question that Jesus deals with in this text. And then he then goes and says, well, then who do you look to to provide that bread? That's the second question. So that's what we're going to deal with this morning. So let's look at that first question and consider these first six or seven verses of our text this morning. What is it that you and I are looking to to satisfy our hunger? hunger. Let's look at the book here. We're going to kind of do a, a flyby from the next couple of minutes, right? The crowd has awoken from their very satisfying slumber. You know, after you have a really good meal, man, you sleep well that night, right? And Jesus has fed them a really good meal. They're out there in the desolate places and he fed the 5,000 with what? Two fish and what is our, yeah, two fish and, and all those and the several loaves, right? And this crowd of 5,000, really well more than that when you think about children and women and children, They've woken up and they realize something's not right. It dawns on them that, that Jesus is split. He's not there anymore. But they begin to do the math. They're like, wait a minute, we saw Jesus put these guys in a boat, tell them to go across the sea, and then Jesus went up on the mount, and now neither of them are there. So then they taxi uh, a, a boat to take them across the way to Capernaum to see what is up. And when they arrive, they find Jesus was indeed with his disciples, and they begin to go, okay, so how did that happen? And of course, we know from last week, Jesus comes in walking on water in the midst of the storm. And they ask him the question, 
You see it there in verse 25. When did you get here, Rabbi? In other words, they're alarmed by this. They, they feel like Jesus has some kind of innate obligation to them. And that's what's in the question. You remember from verse 15 of this chapter that we were told that once they had seen Jesus do this magnificent miracle of feeding them with these fish and loaves, they intended to take him by force and prop him up as their king. And uh, Jesus then, of course, removes himself from them. But that didn't really dissuade Jesus, right? I mean, they didn't really dissuade the crowd, excuse me, they didn't really dissuade the crowd because they ultimately still saw Jesus as at least minimally this like divine meal ticket. And so when they wake up, they're like, wait a minute, our meal ticket's gone. He's not here. And so that's really what's in the question here. That, that, that they need to, they're, they're looking for Jesus to what? And fill their tummies. And that's what Jesus exposes. He says it right there in verse 26. You are looking for me, not because you really see me for who I am. You're looking to me because I met a temporal need for you. I, I filled your stomachs with food and you slept well. But you don't see that behind me doing that is something much bigger, much better, much more beautiful than you can see at this moment. And so then in verse 27 through 29, he begins to get the substance of it, right? He begins to, to take them on a deeper look at this hunger. Look at what it says. I tell you, right, you, you, you don't, you're not looking for me as that sign. And remember, Jesus has been showing all kinds of signs. And all the things, everything we've been building up in this study in John is sign after sign after sign. And yet they're missing it after time after time after time. And he says to them, because you're missing the sign, you're, you're looking for food that perishes. And he says, don't. If you really want to get who I am, don't look work. And that's an operative word here. Work for food that perishes, but that which gives eternal life. Jesus is compelling them. He's compelling us as we are now reading this text to, to lift our eyes beyond our temporal needs and desires. He's, he's saying you're giving, you're working, you're, you're, you're spending all of your energies on your life for things that will ultimately perish. You hunger for things that will never really satisfy. This is what Jesus is trying to help them see. And then he begins to tip his cards a little bit further. Exactly how then do you feel? What kind of, how do we find this food that, that satisfied for eternal life? And he says, the Son of Man will give you this. Because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Eternal life then for Jesus is found only in the Son of Man, who he is whom the Father has set his seal of approval. Only the Son sent from God, whom he approves, can fill you, friends. Do you get that? Do you see that? Do you long for that? Is that why you, is that why you come in the room this morning? I hope so. He's the only one who can fill. And when we get this little note here of seal of approval, we're, we're, we're starting to see a larger storyline begin to develop. Jesus is saying... That my God approves of me. And why does God approve of him? Why has he set his seal? Well, let's just think a little bit bigger for a second. The, the, the larger scope of scripture. We, we do it often here. 
that he came to do what Adam didn't do, what Adam failed to do. It's really important. If Jesus is approved, if Jesus is the one who satisfies our hunger, he has to do what our ancestor, our great, 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 great grandfather and his, and his wife Eve, what they failed to do. That's where the seal of approval comes from. Jesus has come to reverse the curse. Adam earned a curse for us, and now we are plunged under that and cannot change that without Jesus' obedience to the Father as the only answer or answer to this incurable spiritual longing that lives in each and every one of us here this morning. So Jesus is saying, you think you're hungry, but you don't even know what you're hungering for. Let me show you. And then they ask the question. It's a really good question. Because Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes. And they say, well, then, okay, what do we perform? How, what can we do to perform the works of God, they ask? In other words, what kind of works can we do that will actually please God? And Jesus responds very directly, very succinctly. The work you need to do, the only work that will satisfy you, is faith believing in the one God has sent. It's the only thing that satisfies. It's the only anchor that will hold. It's anything of us in here in this room. I don't know what brought you in this room this morning. I trust that it's because of this very anchor you're here. But perhaps you're here because you're looking for something, something to fill a void for you, to finally satisfy a deep hunger that you've not been able to fill with other things. And Jesus says, I am that anchor. Belief in me, the one whom God has sent. And Jesus is just commending them, spend your life being satisfied in Christ. It's a simple mission statement, isn't it? That's it. Spend your life being satisfied in Christ. So let's just step back before we move on in our text to consider, like, what, is this, what, is John, what would John want us to kind of see here in this for us today? What does he want his readers to take away from this? Why is John constructed it this way? Well, i got a few, at least three things that I think might be helpful for us to consider as what we've learned thus far before we move on to our second heading, our second question. Number one, we need to be careful that, that we don't fill the inner hunger of our heart with things that can never truly satisfy. And friends, this is the battle for your life. It is literally, the you get out of bed, put your feet on the floor every morning, this has got to be numero uno. Because to, cause this day, today, when you leave here tomorrow, when you wake up tomorrow, there is going to be something competing for your affections. There's going to be something competing to fill that hunger in your soul, just like it does for me, every single day. This is, this is what John Calvin called auto factories. That every day, every moment of your life, there is some kind of idol that is seeking to creep up on the throne of your heart, and it's not Jesus. It's something else. And we've got to understand that our hearts are factories that want to churn out new idols all the time. And we need to make sure every day we are with faith in Christ, saying, no, Christ is on the heart, throne of my heart. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory said it this way. He says, we would, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. So we're very passionate about a lot of things, aren't we? I mean, everyone, there's a lot of things in this room we're passionate about. But God finds our passions too weak. He finds your passion for your job too weak. 
He found your passion for your 401k too weak. Your passion for your any number of other things. He keeps on. We are half-hearted creatures, C.S. Lewis says. Lewis says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joy when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it was meant to be offered a holiday at sea. We're, all, we're, we're far too easily pleased. So the very first thing that we want to wrestle with as Jesus is talking about speaking and touching on this hunger is to recognize that, that we've got we to be careful with the things that we're seeking that what we think are going to fill that inner hunger. Of course, this is not to say. We've got to be careful that the things that we pursue are innately sinful. Of course they're not. There are lots of good gifts God gives us. Lots of good things that we should and can pursue. And we can pursue, should and pursue with freedom. But... God has designed us to understand that our pursuits reveal something insatiably unfulfilled in our life. And only when we turn to Christ can any of the things that we do actually find real meaning, find real hope. There's something about this life. Let's just think about this in, in this sense. We talked about food earlier, which we're talking about here. There's still something without Christ, that, that makes food unsatisfying. And that without Christ, there's something about drink that cannot quench our thirst without Jesus. That there's something about riches that don't bring us comfort and joy without Christ. There's something about rest that's just not restful. Every year is a battle, especially about this time of year when I get ready to go on vacation, there's a battle for rest in my heart. And unless I find that rest in Christ, no matter how much I try to do to rest, I just can't rest. So my rest must begin. My hunger, my satisfaction for food, my, my, the quenching of my thirst, the, the satisfaction and comfort in whatever riches the Lord has providentially allowed for my life must begin with Christ. It must. It will be the only thing. He will be the only thing that really, truly satisfies. Second thing that from this before... Is, is, is be careful of the tendency to treat Jesus as a meal ticket. Because that's what we're going to do if we're not careful. We'll, we'll take the things that we, we think are important in our life and we'll, we'll give Jesus enough attention so that we feel satisfied to things. Okay, Jesus, is, Jesus has kind of baked me in now. He's hidden me in. I've got some comforts here. And so we'll kind of turn Jesus into the meal ticket because that's what these guys have done. They pursued him not because he's a sign, not because he really is the son of God, sent from God, but because their tummies were filled. They looked to him to be the provider for earthly comforts rather than that second person of the Trinity who, who righteously rules, who, who, who judges heaven and earth. That's the God we serve. That's the Lord Savior that we live under authority of. See, we can easily treat Jesus as a means to an end for earthly joy and comfort. And we do it all the time. We see the, you know, the easy target is prosperity gospel. But prosperity gospel goes way deeper into the American experience than we realize. Because we kind of turn the gospel into this overly principalized kind of approach to life of how you can be a better dad, be a better mom, be a better bop, 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 bop. You know what I mean? That's prosperity gospel too. We over-principalize it and we so basically we just basically take Jesus and he's just kind of this means to get my better life. Be careful with that. Rather, rather than 
him being the end or him being the means to an end, we need to see Jesus as the end himself of our joy and comfort. It's important. Last, before we, again, before we move on to the next point, is we need to learn to find our approval. And that's what this whole text drives us to, right? To approval in the faithful obedience of Christ alone. That's really what it comes down to. Because Jesus sets the context of their hunger in what are you working for? I told you that was an important word here. And work entails approval. Am I doing good work? Or am I doing bad work? And Jesus says, you're doing bad work. You're, you're pursuing food that, doesn't, that perishes. And I'm telling you, you need to be up to the good work. And the good work, of course, as we noted earlier, is work of faith in Christ. But to say faith in Christ means that I look to Jesus as my final approval, not the things that I do, not the things that I try to rally around my life to find approval in my life. The, the life work of the Christian always and ever will be the work of faith. It is a work of faith. Not that that is a way in which we are saved, like we are not saved by our own works, but there is a, once we are trusted in Christ and we have been saved, it's, it's this glorious work that we're called to, to continue to run back to the cross every day and every moment of every day. So when we put all this together in these first few verses, what we got to remind ourselves is that those who have their hunger satisfied are the ones who are doing the work of repentance and faith. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, turn away from that, turn to this. That's what repentance of faith is. And, and, and we sometimes, and we return, we reduce repentance of faith to what? That one time time we walked down the aisle and we prayed and received Jesus. But that's not what repentance of faith is. Repentance of faith is the ongoing work of the Christian. Amen. The daily work of the Christian. That repentance, as I mentioned earlier, is the turning away from the things that we seek to satisfy or prove ourselves before God other than Christ. That's what repentance is. And faith is the other side of the coin. Turning to the only one who is approved by God, who has settled demands of our sin and satisfies both God's wrath, but also fills that empty void of our heart. That's what repentance and faith is. Every day. It's hard work. It's, it's beautiful work, but it's hard work because the battle is raging. It rages every day for us. And so Jesus has said, he's just, again, this first question, what do you hunger for? Do you see it? Are you hungering for the right things? Are you pursuing the right things to fill that hunger? And then he then spends the rest of this little discourse about the bread of life, really showing them who is it that, that you are looking to to provide you true bread? So look what they do next. You can imagine as Jesus is unfolding this whole narrative, uh, they've got some questions starting to build up in their minds, and the questions start to come out. Verse 30. This is, this is what... Now they get turned back to the signs, right? What sign, then, are you going to show us, are you going to do that we may see and believe you? Well, like I said earlier, Jesus' signs have been evident for a while. And one wonders how they would ever have... Uh, what kind of sign it would actually take to convince them otherwise. And so when they ask him for this sign, they again continue to kind of pour on a little bit. What, what, what are you going to perform, Jesus? Remember our ancestors? So they kind of pull out the Sunday school lesson for a second. Hey, remember our ancestors? Uh, um, God, they, they, he, um, they ate manna from, in the wilderness. 
God did indeed feed his people in the wilderness. In fact, it was manna from heaven. And it says he gave them bread from heaven to eat, they say. So they're like, okay, Jesus, that's a sign. What sign are you going to do? And Jesus says, okay, I'll match that. Verse 32, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. In that moment, it was just bread. It satisfied you day to day. You take what you need for that day, and the rest of the next day it's going to go sour. Don't eat what you don't need. Eat only what God, Lord, provides for you this day. But he is saying, my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So there's two things kind of, I think, going on here in the life of these, these, these followers that are kind of walking around pursuing Jesus. They're, they, one, we see, at least instantly, that they're kind of taking a superficial approach to the scriptures um, simply because they were... Um, they wanted to push back against Jesus, right? They, maybe they didn't like, number two, that he was being so direct. Maybe he seems a bit insensitive to them in some capacity. I mean, what's wrong with wanting bread? And of course, there's nothing wrong with wanting bread. There's nothing wrong with any of us needing bread. The Lord provides those things. He graciously and, and willfully and lovingly provides those kinds of things for us that is absolutely true and so they're just trying to push back a little bit here but jesus's answer is just as plain as we just noted right it wasn't moses that gave you this i mean you, you got your remember back at the end of chapter five it's moses that condemns you. you you say moses is your pinnacle but you don't even believe and don't even see what moses actually did and so jesus brings moses back to the forefront yet again here in chapter six it's not Moses that, it wasn't Moses that provided you bread. It was God who provides you bread and eternal bread, heavenly bread. That the bread of God is the one sent from God, Jesus says, and gives life to the world. And so what he's doing is he's, he's correcting their Sunday school lesson a little bit, right? We tend to reduce the Bible and particularly the Old Testament into these little nice little morality tales. But we fail to see that there's something bigger in the Noah's Ark about God's redemption. There's something bigger about uh, Isaac's, uh, Isaac's being asked to be, I mean, Abraham's trying to sacrifice Isaac. There's something bigger there. There's something bigger in Moses. There's all these things are just bigger. And Jesus is saying, you think you got the Sunday school lesson. Let me tell you what it actually means. Right? That the bread and manna was at best, as we've said many times, a type. It was a real thing that God gave you, but it represented something far greater. Jesus, that God would send ultimate bread one day and he would bring life to the world. The second thing that we need to remind ourselves of here in this text is that John here is, is somewhat highlighting the incarnation, the incarnational nature of the work of redemption, that it, it is God's son it's not us who go to God, but it's God's Son who comes to us. He steps out of heaven into the mess, and he offers his body, his flesh, for us. That's what we are to eat on. That is what we are called to be satisfied. And Jesus, Jesus satisfies the hunger of our souls because he is actually the bread of life, as we'll see here in verse 35. And the last thing I want to note here about this section is that I would, it would be remiss then 
It would. It would be remiss for me to say that we can't see at least some imagery to why God gives us the Lord's Supper, why we take the Lord's Supper each and every Sunday. Because it's a reminder of us. It should be a stark reminder when you walk down this aisle a little bit, if you're a believer, what are you hungering for? Every week, it's a gift of God to you and I and the church, as a church, that you will have fought for your life to not hunger after things. And this is a stark reminder for you. Hunger for Christ. It's, it's why we believe in taking the Lord's Supper each and every week. That it signifies that Jesus is this bread and we enjoy it for eternity. Now we get across Christian traditions, there's been many variations about how people have seen this. And so our Catholic friends have used transubstantiation. That's a big word. Don't get alarmed by that. But basically they believe that this is transformed. The, the, the bread and the wine are transformed into a little body and flesh of Christ. And then we're actually eating that in some literal sense. And the reformers, us and our tradition, we stop well short of that. But, but we still want to see in it that the supper is this final sign. It's this final seal that we get to carry along with us on this journey until Jesus returns that shows us God's covenant work and how we are identifying with it and participating in Christ. And that's what Jesus is inviting them into. See, there's an invitation behind this. Participate in Christ. Do it every day. Do it every week as you gather with the church. Do it. Participate with Christ and do it with, I, I think at least implicitly, it may not be explicit in text, at least implicitly with God's people. And the crowd is listening to Jesus teach us and their, their hearts are beginning to change and Jesus looks at them and they say, I'm sorry, they look at Jesus and said, give us this bread then. Just like, by the way, the woman at the well, when Jesus was telling her about the, the water he would give and she's like, and she's still not quite getting it. And she says, well, give me this water that you, that you will, that you will give me that I might be, might have my thirst quenched. And, and so these people are finding themselves in the exact same place. Give us this bread. And Jesus says, you have the bread. It's me. I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever thirst again. So then, how are we helped by this text? Either the whole thing, but at least these last few verses. I think number one, enjoying the manna of Christ is your life. It's your entirety of your life. I hope you see that. Everything about you is shaped by what you enjoy. Are you enjoying the manna of Christ? Make that your life's ambition. This, in my estimation, and I think me and the church father's estimation, was an indispensable aspect of the life of the Christian. That enjoying the men of Christ is to participate with Christ and in his mission. That's how we're there. We can look at a number of how-tos of how we might do this, but in, in, in minimally it's a people of word, a people of prayer, a people of sacrament. Enjoying and participating in the life of Christ. And that leads me to my second and last thought before we close. I think, again, 
Whether or not John was exclusively intended this to have some kind of allusion to the Lord's table, I'd be, I'd be, I think it's at least helpful that we see that there's something implicit here, that there's an importance of a participating with Christ and his people. So what I mean by that is God has given the church this sacrament, this table. He didn't give it to us individually, so we're not, we're, I don't think we're really called to do it individually, although there may be seasons where we may find ourselves in that place. But we're to do it as the people of God. And of course, this is not a backhanded way, you know, if you know who you are, to get, all, you get your act together and become a member of the church. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really just a reminder to us that God has designed the church to be a part of how we participate with Christ. And we shouldn't neglect it. We should be, we should guard it. You know, in my years, nearly 25 years of, of ministry at this point, I've certainly ran across people, in my estimation, well-meaning Christians who neglected the local body for, for some seriously um, misguided reasons. Well, they don't play the music I want them to play. Um... They don't have my kind of people there, my kind of programs. They don't have things for my kids the way I need them to have. Look, and that's not putting down anybody. It just says, man, be careful. Be careful of the things that we will use to neglect the church. But there are also times when there are Christians who find themselves, and, and listen, in the history of our church, some of you sitting in here today, I, I know because we've, the elders have talked about this many times, we have had a number of people who've been estranged from the church because they've been hurt by the church, and it took them some time to get back into it, and, and you did the long haul, and, and hopefully we, we prayed that this would be a safe place where you could work those things out. And it reminds us as God's people, if you're here this morning, especially if you're one of those people who went through that season, when we find people like this, we bear with them in their burden. That's what Galatians chapter 6 says. That we are patiently walking with them. That we pray for them where their prayer may be needed. That we work hard to be the kind of church of Christ that, that we're fulfilling the mission called us to. And what is that mission? Well, Jesus says it clearly here. Believe in Christ. That's it. When you're struggling and you find a brother and sister struggling in Christ, like, like that should be the very first thing on your lips is Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. It's the very heartbeat of everything we do here. And so then taking, again, drawing an inference to taking the Lord's Supper at grace is, it's not just this newfound, hip and trendy things that pastors with tattoos do. Right? <laughs> but it's our life. It's our life. It's our life together. We can do a lot of things beyond this Sunday morning gathering. Sunday school, youth ministry, children's ministry, all wonderful things, small groups, things with mission projects, building projects, all things that are make the church a beautiful, like all hands on deck kind of thing. I love it. But it's never bigger than what we're doing right here and what we will do together at the table here in just a few moments. Never bigger than that. It's part of God's plan to disseminate his grace to his people. It's, it is. It's a means of grace. It's why we do what we do here.
So having our last thought on the Lord's Supper this morning, why don't we pray and prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper together. Father, I'm grateful for this church. I have seen how this church has band together, warred together through some difficult things, and at least especially this last year, that we've just seen how your Holy Spirit has, has, has pulled us together tighter. You've added to our number significantly. We have a grieving widow with her son this morning who will, who will put to rest her husband finally this afternoon, and we have sought to love her and care for her and be patient with her. I just, it's just amazing. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's unfathomable for us this morning to think about, for me at least, to think about what you've done in this church. But God, at the core of what we do here, what makes us, I think, a distinctive people really isn't really all of those things. But what drives all those things, Lord, is the fact that we have enjoyed the manna of Christ. That he is our bread. And he satisfies. Father, your son you sent satisfies our souls deeply. So as we come to the table this morning, help us be reminded of that. If there is anything that would keep us from the table from sin or, or whatever else, God, may you reconcile that, reconcile it quickly, maybe even this morning before they come or before next week. Thank you, Jesus, for this gift that we might be reminded that you are bread. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.